Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Kogel Wine and Film, A Perfect Pairing. Now, what started back in 1993 and terrified a lot of filmgoers has finally come to an end, thank God, <laughs> with the sixth installment of the Jurassic Park film series, this one called Jurassic World Dominion. Plus an enlightened World War II documentary. It's narrated by Gary Sinise, and it follows an unlikely journey of man and machine as they attempt to get back to Normandy, France, 75 years later after D-Day. The film is called Into Flight Once More. I'm Smollier Haley Hamilton Cogill. For this week's pairings, we're going carnivorous <laughs> with the meaty Syrah-based red, To along with, I thought it'd be fun to share a few pairing ideas to enjoy with your Jurassic Park experience. And a juicy, inviting Pinot Noir that is giving back to vets to enjoy with Into the Flight once more. But first, Gary, let's talk Dino. Let's talk about Jurassic Park. So uh, just a little bit of background before we get into this, you know, part six man that how, they, how did they need why did they need to do so many uh, you're gonna find out in just a second um <laughs> by the way the first one way back in 1993 scared the ever-loving daylights out of me you know it's a spielberg film it was it was unlike any film we'd ever seen i i just remember uh, when that first one came out going to north park mall in dallas to see the, the advanced screening about two weeks before it came out and it was a packed out audience and there was about a 14-year-old boy. There was a 14-year-old boy that was sitting in front of me. And he got so terrified at one point <laughs> of that movie. He went to the lobby, and I, I, I tapped his mom on his shoulder and said, is he okay? And he goes, oh, yeah, this is just hard for him. It's, and, uh, and then I went to the lobby and spoke with him for just a second and said, are you okay? And I'll just never forget that. that we we, we, we kind of now are numb to a lot of these things. Right. But when you see the first one of anything and it's, Made on such a and high level. Well done. And Michael Crichton's books were big, and they were huge. But that that we had never seen dinosaurs like that. We'd never seen CGI like that, and, and creatures like that. And and that music score by John Williams was just so magnificent. But here's why they make these movies. The original Jurassic Park in '93, I think, made over just over one billion dollars worldwide. Wow. So in '93, a billion that's was huge. that's that's a lot. Insane. The Lost World, the sequel, Jurassic Park, which was the second one, did $618 million. So it took a big dip. That's still a lot of money back in back then. In 2001, it was Jurassic Park 3, which was not a good film at all. It did $368 million. So it took a big dip down there. And then they start calling them Jurassic World movies. Right. And, and, and they, they kind of changed it and changed it up a little bit. And Spiel, Spielberg stepped out a little bit. When they came back with that one, which was 14 years later, 
it made $1.67 billion. Wow. And then Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, which is the worst of all of them, just, <laughs> it's almost unwatchable, the last one, uh, did $1.31 billion. So this wow. is why they make this. This one has already, it opened at, uh, I think, 100 $146 million Wow! over the weekend. Just a little bit less than Top, Top Gun. Gun. Top yeah. Gun did a little over 100 I think did $152 million on the opening weekend. But this, one, this one's already over $400 million now worldwide, this Jurassic Park it's movie. Crazy. Yeah. And so I, I go to the theater, and I want to say yesterday— <laughs> Because I'm going to a matinee to see Jurassic Park, and I'm a guy, and I'm by myself. I, I unfortunately was unable to see this week's uh, this week's feature film, and I'm I'm happy to sacrifice myself for you. <laughs> Thank you. This, for... This, this, listen, I love you. This is not your movie. Although I will say, it started off just horribly, and it's just you know, all, everybody's in it too. This is the last one, so they're trying to get everybody back together. And this is the writer and director of the last. So everybody, one. meaning. That that Chris Pratt and Bryce yeah, Chris Dallas, Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard, who have been kind of the stars of the last few of the Dominion or of the of the Jurassic World movies, yeah. Right. And I like both of them, and I they're, they're both real fun. But they've gotten uh, the movies have gotten so dumbed down that literally they're on a plane and they're in Europe in like two seconds, and they <laughs> and then they just run in, and then they just they're in Europe and they're in the Dolomite Mountains, and they just run into Sam Neill. <laughs> And Laura Dern and Jeff Goldblum. Oh, hey, how oh, you doing? Oh, hey, and 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 they're trying to get the you know their daughter back, who was over there and been kidnapped, and they all just kind of show up in the Dolomites from Montana. <laughs> it's pretty funny, and then there's some real awkward stuff. And I'm going to say all these things that don't work, and you just throw it all out there. If I was a 12 year old boy. I'd be so excited to watch this movie. <laughs> so there's a 12-year-old in me that about 30 minutes into this movie, as I start nodding off in a Jurassic World movie, <laughs> I literally start nodding off and thinking about what, what my schedule is going to be for the next four or five hours. Uh, it pops up, and all of a sudden, they they start doing these chases with these— and there's a lot of dinosaurs I've never seen before— and they're they're just me. There's a lot of collateral damage in this movie, and dinosaurs just knocking over buildings and doing all kinds of things. But it, they have a chasing that reminds me a lot of uh, of Indiana Jones on a motorcycle with Chris Pratt, and it's really fun to watch. And they kind of get serious about all this stuff that's going on, and I I kind of like the whole middle section of the movie. So there's is it a good movie? No. Is it a D? No. Is it a C plus? Probably. So you could have um, skipped the. You could have arrived late and left early, and probably walked away feeling really good. Yeah, like wow, that was a that was awesome. That was a good ninety minute movie <laughs> in a two and a half hour time frame. And ninety minutes isn't you know. I mean, we, we there's a lot of films we see that are not even in this you know in this realm. But but two when and it, a half hours. But when it clicks, yes. Oh and when it <laughs> and of course. Everything's going to work out. Of course, it is. It's, it's all going to. It's all going to work out. But you know, in this one, and uh, you know, the 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 whole premise of the movie is that dinosaurs now are all over the world, and so they open with this kind of news sequence of, you know, it's kind of like counting down COVID. Yesterday, only four hundred and sixty-seven people were killed by dinosaurs, 
And it's kind of like, what? Wow. And, and they have all this news footage of this little girl screaming and little velociraptors in her hair, you know, <laughs> carrying her off on a beach. And there's all this just tragic stuff that's going on. T-Rex is out in front of the Museum of Natural History in London just duking it out and people running for their lives. And, wow. and that's just a normal news day. And the world is trying to figure out how to do this. And, of course, there's a big, huge corporation that <laughs> this is the other funny part. You know, if you build a corporation and you're going to kind of rejuvenate the whole dinosaur thing and get into DNA and start creating creatures, but yet the world's gone amok, this billionaire goes and builds this Elon Musk-style <laughs> compound in the Dolomite Mountains, and it's in the middle of nowhere, and it's always got snow and ice. I bet it was beautiful. It was, but there's— it's one of the most majestic places in the world. It is, but, but it's completely surrounded by snow. They land on an ice pack, and then they go around the corner, and it's all like a fresh forest. And I'm trying to think, how they doing How'd they do that? How they doing that this? That doesn't make any sense. Then there's dinosaurs, and they're all maniacal, and they want to take over the world. So, you know, Laura Dern and all. And it's just fun to see Laura Dern, who acts her dinosaur socks off in this movie. <laughs> and she's really good because she's Laura Dern. And Jeff Goldblum does his thing where he kind of narrates, and I can't do him, but, you know. No, don't. Yeah. He's always going into science talk and doing detailed things about things and using his hands a lot. And then Sam Neill looks like he just can't wait to get to another bottle of his own wine. <laughs> yeah, I love Sam Neill. And he doesn't show up in movies very often. Right. So, yeah. So this one's going to probably do a billion dollars before it's over. Wow. And that's, and that's probably a good close to the thing. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Let's pair. Let's do, let's talk, <laughs> let's pair this movie. Let's pair this awesome With a wine film. that's probably better than the movie. I think it is. So yeah. the first time I had a Syrah from Argentina, which is probably not the variety you think about when you think of Argentina, because we kind of think, think of Malbec, of Malbec yeah. as their signature variety. But the Syrah from Argentina, and this was many years ago, and so styles have certainly changed a little bit. But the one element that I took away from the first taste of this, it was either a Brescia or a Las Perdices or something like that, both still making um, Syrah, was that it had this smoky, meaty, bacon fatty yumminess. Wow. That was just so an earthy and dry Pop that bottle of bacon fat. (laughs) Which, you know, is a very interesting, uh, you know, you may not consider drinking bacon fat as a good thing, but the smell of bacon as it's cooked, it's like the smell of grilled steak. It's That's just, a staple of Syrah, too, isn't it? Of a good Syrah? Well, it's just having kind yeah. of a meatiness. Yeah. The smokiness is, and the spiciness you you often find in a Syrah. But there was just this beautiful element of earthiness, very old world style. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just I, I just loved it. And it was, it was unlike um, a lot of the other wines of of Argentina that are more Morello cherry and berry and and certainly earthy, but but more on the the fruit side mm-hmm. um, instead of just this very um, peppery, dense, rich, oh, just beautiful wines. And so the nice thing that a lot of producers are uh, that are utilizing um, Syrah now are doing kind of these blends. And I I also appreciate um, Argentina being a new world wine region versus um, old world 
wine regions that don't have as much um, flexibility in the varieties they can use and and their blend. For instance, in Bordeaux, you're, it's illegal to put Syrah in your Bordeaux-based blend. Um, but in Argentina, they they celebrate the blend and they find the best, um, you know, whatever's going to marry well. And so whether that be Malbec with Bonarda or Malbec with Syrah or Cabernet with Syrah or, you know, whatever, whomever wants to to create that day, it's and and every year it's it can change. So it might be the same red blend, but it'll have 50 percent X today and 20 percent of that for the next year's vintage. So wow. a lot of different um, kind of Malbec, Syrah, Cab blends that are are being created. And and I think just beautiful, as I said, Las Perdices, uh, Trevento, Pascual Tosa, um, just some really, really nice um, producers that are are doing, I think, a really nice job with. I love good Syrahs. I know you do. I really do. You love a good Rhone blend. I, I do. And I and they get real smoky to me. Yeah. 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 And peppery. And peppery. And but they get, sm- you know, a really good one's really smooth. Right. We had, yes, it's 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 wonderful. We had one actually last night from the Rhone. And, and it's wonderful when yeah. when you can, you know, allow the one, it, it was nicely aged. And so it kind of had, um, the tannins were very soft. It was just very lush and soft and juicy. And that's the nice thing about what um, also when you do create these blends, then you still bring in all those beautiful fruit characteristics, all of the the rich cherry and kind of mushroom. And ooh, speaking of, so what are we going to pair? What would you pair with that, Gary? Oh, um, well, it's, it's, it's meat driven for me. Yeah. But I, I would do a scallop with it. A grilled Ooh. scallop, maybe, uh, with a nice crust on it. Um, interesting. <clears throat> I I don't know if I would do, <laughs> but I, so I picked the wrong one. Right away. No, no, I mean obviously it's no, a no, meaty no. it's a meaty wine. You could if I mean oh, I well I'm for a, me a rack of ribs. I mean just a, a really barbecue that'll bring barbecue. This, yeah, that brings all that smoky, a, yummy. You know any any kind of steak. I mean richness it, in. Yeah. Oh, but you could also do just beautiful, um, like portobello mushrooms on the grill. You can do um, a, a nice mushroom risotto. You can do you oh, know, even yeah. stuff with umami. Lots of umami, lots of pepper. You could do, um, I think, even even uh, like a lamb roast lamb chops brisket i think you brisket. know slow and slow and low low and slow i miss smoky. brisket i know you do babe. <laughs> <laughs> you do no but the whole mushroom thing too yeah. I, I i love that i i could see um smoked brisket uh tam- not tamales tacos, uh, uh, tacos. yeah smoked yeah. brisket tacos smoked brisket enchiladas Ooh. yeah from red o yeah. okay yeah with a nice syrah that works for me Awesome. All right. So it, I think it's a better wine than a movie. <laughs> but, you know, drink this wine halfway through the movie and you're just going to be And you're so, going to be so happy. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just get just, in there. With just it. hide it in your, in your, in your bag and take it on into the theater. Have you ever done that? <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. Sneaking wine into a movie I theater? I can't even, I don't, I don't, I have no idea what you're even. Dozens and <laughs> dozens of about. times. <laughs> That's how it works. When we come back on Cogill Wine and Film, A Perfect Pairing, a look at a documentary. It's about a remarkable reunion of DC-3 airplanes and pilots that were the first to fly into enemy territory during the D-Day invasion. 
And the wine country story that is attached to one of those planes, it's called Into Flight Once More, and we will be right back. Welcome back to Cogill Wine and Film, A Perfect Pairing. Recently on June 6th, our country celebrated the 78th anniversary of the D-Day invasion off the coast of France during World War II. Few new films have come out recently with World War II as a focus, including a new documentary that celebrates a reunion of some of those men, their machines, and the beginning of that invasion. It's called Into the Flight Once More, executive produced by one of our buddies, the owner, one of the co-owners of one of our favorite wineries, Benovia's Joe Anderson. Gary, what'd you think? I loved, I'm going to also just preface, I was so, your father fought in World War II, and yes. so I want to get to that in a little bit, but I was I was really excited for, for you to see this and and kind of to to go on an adventure with these guys. So this is, it really is an adventure. And there are a lot of documentaries that reunite D-Day guys, men and women, mostly men, and most of them are gone. And so every year when a new one comes out and you watch this, a lot of them are just talking about, now they've all evolved. They're all in wheelchairs. They don't get around. They're really in their late 90s. Some of them are 100 and there's one guy in this movie that is so beautiful and so interesting. And he's 96, and you swear he's 40. But he's and he's walking around, and he's one of the he was one of the paratroopers. But here's the story. What what happened is there's a group called the D-Day Squad, and there's there are a bunch of DC three airlines um, and airplanes, and there's only a handful of them left, and they're scattered around in parts of America. And some of them are in working order, and some are not. Some need to be restored and haven't been. And they're sitting in the field with, you know, brush growing all around them. And over about a two-year period, they found these airlines, and each one had airplanes. Each one had to have it it completely restored. And so each one made it like a little business model to do it. And Joe being one of them to completely restore it. Some of them had never been flown since then. And uh, one of them is out there and does tours and you can go up in it and all those kinds of things. But the rest of them and the whole plan was to get to uh, Connecticut and then to get to uh, Newfoundland and then to get to Iceland and Greenland. Because they're basically recreating the— They don't want to fly over the Atlantic in one stop. But the, they're but, basically—they're they're restoring these planes to be able to go back and and re, recreate this, this landing. So it was, it was the anniversary of D-Day three years ago, and, what, and there's a half— 75th a mi- anniversary. Yeah, the 75th, and there's a half a million people out on, on that air, in that area, and they want to fly over it in formation. And that's the whole point is to get there. And they're also filled with paratroopers as these reenactment guys are wearing their World War II paratrooper uniforms with looks like a little duffel bag on the back, but that's their parachute. And they jump out and they parachute out. And one of them is the 96-year-old guy who double jumped. You know, he's not jumping by himself, but he went in tandem. And they call it, you know, hook up and load up, hook mm-hmm. up and run out. And and so through the, the course of the movie, you, you, you learn a lot about the aircraft and about these guys. A lot of them didn't come back and a lot of them died. But um, And these were just buckets of bolts. But, man, they were strong and they were heavy and they flew pretty slow. And, uh, and they have a lot of footage from World War II of those actual planes. And then you see them restored with a, a younger crew, because the old guys are not flying now, but they, they took them all over there separately so they could be there and watch their plane fly over them. And you just get 
so teary-eyed about that. You know, and I, I, I do. I think of my dad, Robert Lee Cogill, you know, Bob. And I think of, uh, you know, he was in the Pacific, and he wasn't in the aircraft, but he was on a destroyer tender, and he shot down, you know, kamikaze planes. He was on one of those pom-pom guns. And there was four guys on each gun, and he shot down hundreds of planes. Wow. The group of them, and he he kept a diary, which was illegal during the time, or or not kosher during the time of World War II. They asked the soldiers not to keep diaries, and most of them did. And I've read all those old notes, and they're just amazing. And days that you days that they're they're up for twenty straight hours, just nonstop shooting planes down because if they wow. don't, the plane shoots them. Yeah. And you know they put an aircraft carrier, and then they circle it with different kinds of ships. And he was one of the last ones before the aircraft carry, and you got to shoot him down. And just that whole craziness of, the, of all of that and the things that he saw, he, he didn't talk about his experience a lot. Before he died, he talked. He, he was interviewed by, by some people who wanted to, to f- find a lot of these guys and talk mm-hmm. to them. So there, there's some recordings of him out there somewhere. But, but, but he opened up with me quite a bit about a lot of this stuff, yeah. most of it horrible and tragic, and he could never— never talk about it, but he, he he spoke to me about it. And it's it's always amazing and fascinating me. Did he go to reunions? He went to his he was on the USS Reno. He was on three ships. Two of them were sunk and he survived in the harbor twice or uh-huh. in the water twice. And the third one, I remember he had a big knot in his back and it was a piece of shrapnel that they could never take out. It just I would always touch it on his back when I was little. I thought that was kind of fascinating. But he, uh, but his last ship was the ship of record was the USS Reno, and I went to a couple of reunions with him. And they were fascinating. They, every year there was less and less and less. But these guys all loved each other, and a lot of them were from Oregon, and some of them were loggers that were missing two and three fingers, and guys <laughs> that you know were just tough guys. Yeah, you know, one of them was my dad's dear friend was Mel Post, and they met on the Reno, and they were friends of ours for life. We would go down to a little part near Eugene, Oregon, and visit them. They, I remember them. They had a farm, and they didn't have they didn't have a, a toilet. They had an outhouse, and it was fascinating. As a little, they didn't have indoor plumbing. They didn't have indoor plumbing, but they had a really cool little farmhouse and and two hundred acres. And man, it was like a, an adventure. They also had seven girls. Wow. <laughs> They didn't have any. Hello, Cogill. And I would go and stay for a week, and I was like twelve. <laughs> And they would all run around in their little farm dresses. And they were this the sweetest thing. Anyway, the, there, the movie's a, really good. There's an interesting thing as a, you know, I, I studied World War II extensively um, when I was in college and, and just have always been so fascinated by by so many different aspects of 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 the war. But the one thing that's that's always so fascinating and I think so um endearing are the relationships that that were built and because these guys were just kids and they were gone for like two three four years yeah they weren't gone for a week right and they were kids you know there's a section in the movie they talk about lying about their age Mm -hmm. and my dad went in at 16 said he was 18 so all of his documents are two years off his birthday wow yeah because they they had to they wanted to and and I think also you, I mean, you experience things that that you can't ever talk about, but you can talk about it with with, with the people who were yeah, yeah, yeah. with you yeah. It's the, really it's just it's a pretty amazing group of people yeah yeah it's well good I'm I'm glad but the I, film celebrates that the film yeah. you know I felt sometimes these movies are just talking heads where yeah. you, 
you know, you see these gentlemen, and you get moved by them no matter what. But there's there's a point in this movie where they start taking off because you don't know if these rebuilt planes are going to make it or not, and they're and they're flying. You know, it, it, it's a two month journey just to fly there because they had to stop and refill and then <clears throat> kind of rebuild a little bit, and some something would happen or break down. Right. But at one point they land. I think it's in in Iceland. They or in Greenland. They land in Greenland on an airstrip that. Most veterans will not fly into, and they've got camera crews with them, and you you get one shot at this airstrip yeah. in the middle of nowhere in this mountain on a ledge, and you you just are it's really cool yeah. to watch them do it in the sense of pride that they all have because everywhere they go, the crowds get bigger. Yeah. There's hundreds of people that join them in Newfoundland, and there's thousands in Greenland and more thousands in Iceland, and then when they finally get to France, there's a half a million people. And there they are flying yeah. over. And that's just what they wanted to do. It's the the end result, and then they end up with this plane. And, you know, there's probably part two. They have to get back. <laughs> that made me a little teary-eyed. It, it does. And a lot of them are family members, you know, of, of— Of people that were lost. Of them, but also just people in that community that found out, hey, they're going to restore this plane mm-hmm. and fly it mm-hmm. over there. Can I come over, you know, with a brush and just kind of start cleaning the metal off and— that's what it took. It was just yeah. a, and there's a whole bunch of girls and women that do this, and a couple of them fly, in, you know, in there with them, and it, it's really cool. Yeah, and it's loud in those things. Oh man. yeah, yeah. I mean, they're basically it's, it's not comfortable, right? It's it's the fact that they could could do that to land on a, a precarious ledge and 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 basically a a piece of machine that that is so not high tech. <laughs> <laughs> so not high tech. Or or they had no GPS. They actually flew by the stars. That's in in the forties. Yeah, you know they they had they have they had radar. They had a little bit of radar, and they could see blips. But they're looking out their window, and it's forty degrees below, and there's ice on it, and they're just trying to find out you know the, the flight track where they are. You know that that's why they have navigators on board that just do that. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. Well, good. Uh, it's really good. I, I love that. And I love that we have a really, um, I think, not only delicious, but very special wine to pair. Um, so to honor the journey, Benovia, which is in Sonoma's Russian River Valley, um, as I said, owned by co-owned by Joe Anderson, his wife, Mary Duane, um, and then Mike Sullivan, their uh, partner and winemaker, have uh, Benovia, and and we've spent many beautiful days with uh, with Benovia's wines mm-hmm. and and enjoying um, gorgeous Pinot Noir and Chardonnays that they make. But um, kind of to honor this celebration, they created a wine called Liberation um, Russian River Valley Pinot Noir, super juicy, lots of cola and raspberry and bright red cherry and kind of everything that you love about. Russian River Pinot, um, nice and velvety and, mm. and soft tannins. They make they make such good so wines. Good. Yeah. So good, so um, good. But they and kind of to honor this whole celebration, um, it's a fifty dollar Pinot, and a part of the sales from each bottle goes to the Gary Sinise Foundation, which I just think is so fantastic. Gary Sinise um, honors and helps. Our vets, um, first responders, their families, those in need, um, 
I, it's, you know, I, I love one. I, I love to drink good wine. I love to drink a good wine with a story. Um, but then I also love to find a wine that, that gives back. And this one, I think obviously so completely, um, worthy. And Sinise, you know, has a band. You'll go to a lot of veterans events and he'll play with his band. Yeah. And then he's always there to support them. And he's, and his foundation gives, just gives and gives and gives. He comes to Dallas a lot, does a lot with SMU. And he's, he's been all over the world. You know, this is the guy from Forrest Gump. <laughs> and he's been in a ton of movies. He started Steppenwolf Theater Company years ago wow. in Chicago, one of the best live theater companies in the world. And, uh, and they'll take a show. I saw Gary Sinise on Broadway. In a, in a play that Steppenwolf started in Chicago and it made it all the way to New York. And I just sat there and, you know, thought it was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. Watched him for about two, three hours. And awesome. just, yeah, he's just, he's a wonderful actor. And a, he, as wonderful as he is on stage and on film, he is in real life. He's, yeah. he's the real deal. So I saw that this film, um, Joe Anderson was one of the executive producers, but yes. Max Sinise was as well. Who is Max Sinise? Uh, I assume Max is related to Gary. I just I, was I, say, I, I don't know. His, okay. I have to look that up. Yeah. I'd I don't be curious know. if it's maybe his dad and that was kind of like a nice, could a be. nice nod or something. It could to, be. To, well, to, I'll find but, that yeah, out. That'd yeah, that'd be I, I just was kind of yeah. kind of curious about that. But um, it's nice to see Joe in this movie a lot because he's in it a lot. And then of course the spirit of Benovia. The plane is really cool. So yeah, so he has one of the planes, yeah. and that's and it's at the um, that's kind of his connection to to how all of this started. Yeah, um, he's in it deep. He's in it. I mean, he he knows everything about that plane. Well, and he, I think he also is a very um, well. I'll just one of his quotes is, "We owe the greatest generation an uh, immeasurable debt." My hope is this film will keep their extraordinary selfless achievements alive for future generations, and I think that that's that's just beautiful. It's it's to be able to document um, something in a in a story filled way. I mean, it, it, we we love documentaries. A lot of documentaries are often, like you said, kind of more talky talking yeah. heads and a little flat. And so it's fun to have something that actually brings a nice sense of adventure and, mm -hmm. and whimsy and joy and, um, and that they now have a document of that to, to take forward. So and sometimes documentaries, they just talk about what they're about to do and do, and they show everything they're talking about yeah. and they show it from the, from vintage footage, black and white footage from world war two of that aircraft, that, that plane. And then them now in the same, place on the way to do the same thing yeah. it's kind of amazing it's really well done it's mind-boggling awesome yeah. awesome yeah. yes great so good good documentary you can rent it i think it's on apple it's, it's on, on apple. prime yeah. it's it's you know a pretty any streaming service i think you can um rent it in the the leisure of your home with one of these beautiful uh bottles of wine nice it, little roasted chicken that's just oh, that just sounds that's like just a good night. stuff well, next week. Well, we, oh, wait. What do you want have, to talk about? This I do want to talk. We're going to just. Okay. There was another film that that recently came out. Let's just let's just yeah, go let's over it because it was it was it was kind of fun. We I mean the we get hooked with a with a good cast anytime. So you know we I see a trailer that has Colin Firth, Matthew McFadden, and Kelly McDonald. There you go. And I'm so excited. Kelly and I look at that because it's directed by John Madden, and Madden directed Shakespeare in Love. Right. And Mrs. Sloan. He's done some really good films. The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. But um, when when he directed Shakespeare in Love and that won the Best Picture over Saving Private Ryan, 
that year. But Spielberg won Best Director, and John Madden didn't. But the film flipped. Yeah. Um, I'll watch anything John Madden does. So this one is called Operation Mincemeat. <laughs> it's not a good title. <laughs> but that's what it was. Well, it's a British film, and yes. it's a World War II era drama. And it's all, all about kind of espionage, but it's about a group of— of brainiacs working for the government in England, and they have to create a scenario um, because they're, they're, it's it's to cover up the invasion of Sicily, and, and they're they're going they're going to they're going to go to Greece instead. And they're telling everybody they're going to go to Greece right. instead, and they they have to create this operation, this this decoy, and it's really interesting. It's it's like uh, you know. Like the Americans would do, you know, to hide the D-Day invasion, you know, you, you create a ruse that we're actually going to go to Africa. Right. And so everybody thinks you're going to go to Africa and then you go to D-Day. So this is what Mincemeat was about. And every once in a while you have these scenes in there with these wonderful actors around a table trying to figure this out yeah. and how to do this and not get caught and get killed right. as well. And it's it's interesting. It's not a great movie. It's not, it's not great. Why did it? Matthew McFadden is Mr. Dorsey. He's 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 so, a guy from Succession. I was yes, but he plays more the Succession guy in this he than does. Mr. Darcy. I want to see Mr. Darcy again. He's not Mr. Darcy in this. <laughs> he's all kind of swarmy. He is. He has a swarmy side to him. He's really good. But he's really good. And Colin Firth is is. And I have this kind of out of the body experience. Every time, every time I see Matthew McFadden in any in anything. I go back to Darcy. Right. And I think, how did that guy get that part? How did he get that gig? How did he get that gig? Because ever since then, he's not that guy. No. He's, he's some swarmy little, and he's so weaselly. He's so weaselly in succession. Well, they all are. They are all yeah, just horrible all, people in yes. succession, and they're great. They, that's, they play their parts well. They're great. Oh, he's such a kisser. I mean, he's just, <laughs> he'll kiss anything to move on up the ladder. But um, but yeah, he is swarmy in this one. But I I would I would recommend the film. Uh, it's I, on Netflix. Yeah, it's on Netflix, and and uh, just because of the lineage in it, but it, it, you can tell it's a movie that's that would it's not going to play in movie theaters, and it came from England, probably played in theaters there and did its business, and right. now it's now it's on Netflix. Yeah. So yeah. it's you know it's a little if you if you come across it, I'd watch yeah. the documentary first. I would too. Yeah, but, I would too. That's a that's actually a good movie pairing. That's a we good pair movie the, pairing. The two together. <laughs> so next week on Cogill One and Film, a perfect pairing, a delicious pairing, showing the beauty of how do you say it? Hotte, hot, hot, hot cuisine. Hotte, H A U T E, hot cuisine. It's a French film, and it's in French, and it's called Delicious, and it's real interesting. It's conjuring up memories of some of our favorite culinary adventures, which we'll talk about next time. Absolutely. But to see what we're drinking now, follow my website, redwinewithbreakfast.com. Follow Gary on Twitter at Gary Cogill and me on Instagram and Twitter at Dallas Uncorked. With that, I'm Gary Cogill, and I'm always looking for the next great film. I'm Haley Hamilton Cogill, always in search of a great glass of wine. Join us next time on Cogill Wine and Film, a perfect pairing. Aloha. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and... Producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.